30, 40 years ago, Paul McCartney of the Beatles has his band Wings. He wants to do band on the run. He wants to record this great new album idea he has. He decides he wants to do it off the grid a little bit, go to a different environment. He decides to go record in Africa. He wants to go to another continent. Well, what did he have to do? He had to find the proper studio. He had to physically go there. He had to bring a producer. All of the different details that went into that and bring his ideas with him. Now, if I wanted to collaborate with a musician from West Africa, I can do it from my living room. That was audio, video, and media services expert Brian Brodeur speaking about one way in which media production, in this case the recording of music, has changed over the past few decades. The transformation of media production and distribution, the opportunities that will create, and what lies ahead in that space will be our focus on the next two episodes of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hello, Looking Forward listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to focus on media production and distribution, be that TV, radio, film, the Internet, or other media formats. In part one of this two-part series, Looking Forward episode number 85, we're going to take a look at how media production and distribution has changed over the past few decades. We'll also learn who's now in the driver's seat when it comes to media production and distribution, and we'll begin to explore what role COVID-19 has played in all of this. In part two, among other things, we'll take a further look at COVID's impact, we'll learn about what the future of media production and distribution might look like, and we'll learn about some of the opportunities that may create for you, our Looking Forward listeners. To help us with all this, we've brought on an outstanding guest expert. He's Brian Brodeur. Brian Brodeur is the founder and president of East Main Media, a full-service audio-video media services firm and studio facility located in Little Falls, New Jersey. Brian's life and career has been spent at the crossroads of entertainment and technology. Entering Berklee College of Music in 1987, Brian studied music technology, and upon leaving Berkeley in 1991, he began his professional career in the recording studio. In 1997, he moved to New York City and joined the staff at Digiram, eventually establishing one of New York City's first DVD studios. In 2001, Brian founded ACIEM LLC, established the New York DVD and ACIEM Studios brands, and has since produced several best-selling DVD titles featuring some of the world's top musicians, Frank Zappa, Fish, Rod Stewart, Buddy Rich, Phil Collins, and dozens more. Today, Brian and East Main Media produce a wide range of products for entertainment, healthcare, financial, education, and nonprofit clientele, including over 100 hours 
of public television broadcasting content annually. The East Main Media Team has recently produced projects featuring such luminaries as President Barack Obama, Keith Urban, and Randy Jackson. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. We've got a really interesting and exciting topic to discuss with you today. But first, Brian, I have to ask you, you have been involved in so many aspects of the media in your career. Was this something that you had realized you wanted to do when you were even a little kid, or did you notice it in college? When did you first realize that this was what you wanted to do for your livelihood? Well, listen, being on the Looking Forward podcast, how can we not start by looking backward? So <laughs> That's right. uh, let's, let's look back to when I was really just a young child. There were several formative influences on me in, when I was young. My older brother, he listened to a lot of classic rock and roll, which involved the Beatles and the Who. And I took to that at a very young age and really it resonated with me. And I started, I will say playing drums, but I started banging on Maxwell House coffee tins with <laughs> pencils and, you know, kitchen utensils. And I just started doing that at a very young age, like, I don't know, four or five or six or something like that. And I just loved it. And I, I set up a little fake drum set made out of coffee tins. And looking back at that, obviously, I was naturally disposed to playing music. And I latched onto that. Nobody showed me how to do it. It was me just watching TV or listening to music. And I started doing this. So speaking of watching TV, part of that was the monkeys. The monkeys. So the monkeys, the monkeys TV show with, of course, Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork and the guys. I loved that show. That was already in syndication by the time I was born, basically. I was born in 1969, so the monkeys had already sort of happened. And I loved that show. And so the combination of these things really propelled me into an interest in music. And then in the late 70s, very, very early 80s, personal computing happened. And my father, managing a business at the time, brought home an Apple II Plus computer. And I had access to that in 1980, 1981. And these two worlds combined, you know, my interest in music and then the technology of early personal computing. Mm. And really the synthesis of that propels me all the way to where I sit today. There's a through line. And so that's the beginning of it. And my path goes along that way for now, you know, 30 plus years in the media business and 20 years with my company, East Main Media. Yes, and we're going to get to East Main Media in one second here. I just wanted to mention to you that what you said is something that I didn't realize until probably the last couple of years when I heard somebody speak, how important it is. And that is, if we think about what it was that we naturally did when we were very young. Nobody told us, Brian, bang on the Maxwell House coffee can, right? For me, it was picking up a bottle of Vitalis, which was a hair cream gel, whatever it was, and announcing in my room with that bottle of Vitalis. So such an important thing when people want to know, I got to figure out what my passion is. Well, was there something you did when you were very young that you actually did pretty well and your friends didn't do it as well or it wasn't so natural to them to do it? That could be an important clue. So thanks for letting us know about that again, because that's what happened with you. Speaking about East Main Media, 
You proudly just celebrated 20 years in business. I wonder if you would share with us just a little bit about East Main Media. Sure. East Main Media is the public brand of my parent company, which is ACM LLC. And I established ACM shortly after September 11, so late 2001. And I had been working in the DVD business as a DVD producer for a couple of years. Then I'd come to New York City to work with the legendary Harry Hirsch, who was a big recording studio mm. builder and owner. So that that was my background is recording industry and recording studios. So when I came to New York, what happened then was DVD technology. And I quickly became a leader in the New York scene for DVDs and a DVD producer. And I had one of the first DVD suites that was that I helped build in New York City, one of the first five in the city. And so that was the scene I was operating in. And to be honest, I mean, after September 11, where they're flying planes into buildings that I I could see out my window, mm. you know, it, it occurred to me, what am I waiting for? You know, what do I have to lose? Look what's happening here. Like, why am I afraid of going out on my own and starting my own business and being a business owner? I want to do that. Well, why not now? So that's what I did. And it's funny, uh, you know, I operated as New York DVD for a number of years and did a lot of recognizable work, some award-winning work, worked with heroes of mine like Neil Peart from Rush and Steve Gadd, the legendary drummer. And uh, eventually that road leads to working with people like Keith Urban and Randy Jackson. And, you know, it just goes on from there. The brand has sort of changed over the years as I have morphed my work with technology. And I think that's something we'll get into talking about looking forward, you know, yes. that is a forward motion, a propelling force in media is technology. So, you know, really East Main Media became the public brand of the company because we diversified. And for really the 10 years leading up to COVID-19, we were the busiest, the leading production and post-production company in New Jersey with our hands on 200 public broadcasting episodes of television every year, wow. huge amount of workflow working with, you know, NBC and Disney and, and like I mentioned, PBS, all kinds of people, but building a great team and, and having a really great workflow and, and doing very high level work. And that's something I'm really proud of, but COVID-19 is a different environment. So I downsized the, the physical studio and downsized my team. And I'm a lot more lean and mean like the early days now, but still just busy as can be and, and producing tons of stuff and really happy about it. That's terrific. And we'll get into talking about COVID-19, of course, in a little bit. But one thing you said that strikes me as interesting, and it relates to COVID-19, Brian, is a lot of people, as you know, these days are deciding to change direction in their careers. Some are quitting their jobs. A lot are quitting their jobs. And COVID-19 seems to be the instrument of change. It's making that happen. It sounded like what you said was that 9-11 almost was like the instrument of change for you. Is that correct? I applaud your connecting the two things. I feel the same way. You know, 9-11 created a cultural shift in a lot of ways. Again, I'm speaking as somebody who on that morning pulled my car over in New Jersey, but right on the Hudson River and looked down Manhattan to smoke billowing out of these buildings, not knowing where my wife, then girlfriend, was who worked downtown, right? Wow. So it was, a, it was a very emotional thing. And, 
you know, not as emotional as some others, of course, but that's a very visceral scenario. That was a very visceral scenario yeah. to me. You know, I know people had similar reactions and took similar actions that had nothing to do geographically with 9-11 during that time. Our culture and our country changed that year. I feel the same thing is happening now, honestly, in a bigger way, frankly, I, yeah. I think in a more meaningful way, in a, in a more broad way, even globally, obviously. That's a whole long geopolitical podcast episode, which we won't do now, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the war on terror versus the war on virus. Let me add one more thing, I guess, you know, in 9-11, in I, I made a choice to move forward. With COVID-19, I think the effects of the virus, the effects of the pandemic were more forced on all of us. It, it was forced on a more broad scale across our our lives and our culture. So it's a little bit different in that way, but I do think plenty of people are having a wake-up call or having a, a call to arms or, or making change in their life. Sometimes that happens out of fear. Sometimes that happens out of inspiration. It's an interesting thing. So I guess guilty is charged. Yes. Well, not guilty. It had a major impact on you and you, and you decided to take a leap. And here you are 20 years later. Good for you for doing that. Now we're going to do what you alluded to earlier, which is we're going to take a look backwards. <laughs> We've brought you on because you are an expert on the media, the various kinds of media. We're talking about film. We're talking about audio, video. You've been in this game for many years, about three decades. So yeah. the question I would have for you is, Brian, how have things evolved in those different realms of the media over the past two or three decades? How have things changed? It's an excellent question, and a complex answer is required, but I'll boil it down to some basics. You know, there are things that change and things that don't change, and I think that's the way we want to look at it. You know, my experience as a professional in the business, whether it's as a producer or a business owner, technically it's 20 years as a business owner, but you're right. I've been doing this about 30 plus years, but the media, the media industry goes all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. And frankly, it would go back before that to literally the printing press, right? So we start there. We have to define what medium or media we're talking about. And the word I always attach to that is formats. formats. So if we're essentially talking about consuming media or something we watch, read, hear, whatever it is, as a consumer of a piece of media, piece of content, it has to be in a format. And so you and I could sit here and rattle off a bunch of formats. They break down to physical or virtual now. Of course, 150, 200 years ago, you may have a newspaper, and that is a dominant form of media, and it's the printed word, and how you make that piece of media and how it gets to its readers, that is essentially the question. Okay, fast forward to today, and let's look at a very modern form of media. We have some choices here. Let's try podcasting. Podcasting is essentially a virtual piece of media. You don't hold it physically, but it comes to you through a device and it's created like what we are doing now, right? A couple yeah. of people or people on microphones, capturing sound, editing it, and then distributing it to an audience. So the formats of these two things are very different, but basically it's communicating words and meaning and message to an audience. So 
this is setting the table a little bit of how we should look at this. Yes, things change and it's important to talk about it, but we also have to realize they stay the same. And as a producer, this is a perspective that I keep in mind. So I can elaborate on any of this, but I'll break right here to see if you want to clarify anything. Did I explain that all right? I think you explained it very well. On the one hand, things really have stayed the same in terms of getting a message out to an audience. But what's changed is the medium or the format, which is the term you used, to deliver it. Is that, in essence, what you're saying? Well, let me take it a step further, because something I've been seeing quite a bit now through the pandemic era is we are now in the 21st century. What the pandemic did was push us into the 21st century. We're all there, like it or not. You know, you might say, well, of course, Brian, we've been here for a couple of decades. Well, my point is, is that media and the structure and the foundation of media was really living on the 20th century models whether it's television, radio, even physical media, CDs, vinyl, whatever you want to call it. But now COVID-19 pushed us into our virtual world. It forced us to do what we're doing right now. You and I are speaking to each other over Zoom, but you know our experiences doing business or with entertainment or communicating like you and I are right now, this is done virtually and it's done via distance. All right, so not to get lost on that, but looking at 20th century to the 21st century. So a crucial thing that I want to point out is in the 20th century, you would talk about an audience and it would be singular. The audience for the show Friends, the audience for the movie Star Wars, the audience for Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, okay? That doesn't exist anymore because it's audiences plural. And the important thing to think about is there are multiple audiences. Honestly, it goes as granular as single people, right? But there are multiple audiences in multiple places getting content the way they want. And this is the important thing to think about that consumers, the audience members, they are in the driver's seat. They are the ones that now in the 21st century can determine when and how they want to consume media. And guess what? Everyone talks about, well, back in the day with the big three television channels, clearly that's all blown out of the water now. There's so much content for any one interest, any one niche interest. There's a competition for content in that very thin slice of interest. This is the world we live in. Whether it's someone that wants to learn about geopolitics on a podcast or somebody that needs to change a, an electrical switch and goes on YouTube or somebody that cuts the cable and doesn't have TV anymore and only watches their big motion pictures on a streaming device. This is the world we live in now. So shining a light on that idea of audiences plural and it's the wild west. If you're a producer like I am, you have multiple, multiple, almost infinite ways to try to reach people, which turns the mirror back to the question of, well, what are you producing and how are you producing it? Is it any good? And frankly, does anybody care? It's fascinating the way you're looking at this. The question that I have in listening to what you said, Brian, is it almost sounds as if if I had asked you this question two years ago. You might have said that there has been very little evolution 
in the different media and that really everything was, I won't say born, but at least catapulted by what happened with COVID. There really wasn't a lot of change over the last 20 or 30 years before COVID. Well, it was coming. It wasn't it wasn't flipping a switch. You know, we all knew that streaming devices were starting to take the place of TV and, you know, millennials were cutting the cord and live theater audiences at the movie theater were those numbers were down. Everyone knew this was coming. COVID sort of pushed it over the edge. And and I would add a layer to that, which is business. Business and people having to communicate virtually through these new platforms like Zoom or like WebEx or whatever it is, that really was forced upon us as a culture, as a globe. But we've embraced this now and that folds over to business. My networking group that I'm in every two weeks is purely virtual. It used to be in person. Now it's not going back. It's virtual. And we all have that time back in our lives. But now take it a step further because this actually breaks down doors and opens up all kinds of opportunity. Let me give you a real example. 30, 40 years ago, Paul McCartney of the Beatles has his band Wings. He wants to do band on the run. He wants to record this great new album idea he has. He decides he wants to do it off the grid a little bit, go to a different environment. He decides to go record in Africa. He wants to go to another continent. Well, what did he have to do? He had to find the proper studio. He had to physically go there. He had to bring a producer all of the different details that went into that and bring his ideas with him. Now, if I wanted to collaborate with a musician from West Africa, I can do it from my living room. And the sonic capabilities are all there and the ideas can translate, the technical music and recording can translate. This era that we're just really starting in that was promised for decades to us as humans, this era is just beginning especially as mobile devices are spread across the globe. Well, that's a perfect segue to what I want to ask you next. When you talk about across the globe, we've got listeners who don't live in the United States. You're talking about this dramatic change accelerated greatly by COVID. And you use this phrase, which is very interesting to me and maybe to others, that now the consumer of media is in the driver's seat, is what you've just said, and you said a lot, and it was very profound, is that applicable to people who live outside the United States, whether it be North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa? Is that applicable to others? Are they seeing this happening too? Well, sure. I mean, honestly, I think it's more applicable. Let's look at it from both sides of the camera, per se. I like to use the an analogy of sports. Let's look through the sports lens. Speaking for myself, I'm a huge fan of the international sport of Formula One racing. Love it. As you and I speak, it's a very tight race for the championship. It's in Saudi Arabia, the next race, and it's mm. a brand new track. Everyone's really excited for it. Now, 30 years ago, or maybe even 20 years ago, my access to watching that race, not just watching the race on media, like a television show, but being involved in the culture and the ecosystem of the world of Formula One. As a fan, as a consumer, it was very limited. And as a young person, Formula One to me only showed up on television 
it was really usually on like the ABC wide world of sports, usually just two races. It was Monaco, the very famous race, and then the Canadian Grand Prix because they were a neighbor to the United States. Those barriers and access to that world of motorsport are absolutely gone. And everything in that world is accessible. When I say everything, everything is accessible through a mobile device. Now, how is it accessible? Well, we'll get to that because it means money. That's the other side of the camera, meaning selling selling content to people. We'll get to that. But the access to this content at an extreme level has become ubiquitous. So if I have a mobile device and I can pay for the Formula One membership, the access to the video, and I'm anywhere in the globe with cell service, with with fast enough cell service, basically, I can consume that media. And so you see that particular sport has moved how they operate to connect to that. They've changed the times of races to be more globally sensitive, not just Europe centric. So they've added night races so that the East may see it and the United States, a growing market in the North American market would be growing and then Europe still would see it. So this is one example of how media access and technology has allowed a particular sport or a particular content creator to grow. We could have that whole conversation up a notch with football or soccer, right? Of course, in the United States, football to us is a a different American sport. I don't particularly watch it that much, but football globally, or what we call soccer here in the U.S., is a giant industry and sport and played at a very high level on every continent. And so that also is now available. And again, only a handful of years ago, I may not be able to tune in on demand to the Premier League in Europe or, you know, La Liga or Syria or even the Africa Cup of Nations. I mean, any of this was not on my radar. But now, because of technology and the physical devices and the ability to deliver to consumers, these barriers are broken down. Just start laying that analogy on everything. Music. It just breaks down into music. Movies. And now, business, right? So now thought leadership and relationship building and connection creation can be global. So I can have a conversation just as easily with you about all of this as I could with someone in West Africa, you know, Europe, China, Japan, what it doesn't matter. If I want to get up in the middle of the night and talk to Australia, we could do that. All the barriers are broken down now. It's just beginning. I'm thrilled. It's great. I agree with you about how much easier it is now. I've actually had podcast episodes with people in Estonia, in Australia, and I've had some great conversations with people in Africa. None of this would have happened back in the day. I want to add something, which is, I think, fascinating. I could create a virtual video relationship with somebody anywhere in the world, and I could get on a plane and fly there and in a strange way, I would know them a little bit already. And when I get off that plane, it would not be like I'm meeting a stranger or even like just talking to somebody on the phone. I would have a physical visual relationship with them. And I've experienced that during COVID here in the United States where I went to a meeting and 
was speaking to someone and the woman said to me, Brian, do you realize we've never physically met, but we felt like we knew each other. And that opportunity is available to us globally. And I hope that's an optimistic thing. I hope that helps us on this planet. Yes, hopefully to break down barriers. Absolutely. Brian, you said a lot of really fascinating things there about how things have evolved, and they've evolved dramatically. You mentioned COVID. You mentioned technology. You gave us a great example there with Formula One. Do you see major implications in terms of this evolution? We'll get more into looking forward, but at the mm -hmm. moment, what are you thinking in terms of yeah. what impact that's had? Well, the light I would shine on it, or the perspective is this. We're not going backwards. We're not unringing the bell. I mentioned before that, you know, the audience is in the driver's seat and there's a lot to that. The audience has many, many choices of what to consume and what to find, what kind of access they have to information. Now, remember, there are countries in the world that limit consumers' access to certain things. Okay. That being said, the choices for consumers and audience members are wide and they vary. So that's not going away. You know, we're not going back to three stations of television, but there's an extra element to it, which is that like three stations of television in the United States, there used to be gatekeepers. There used to be only so many people that were in charge of getting content to an audience. That has changed too. It really started honestly with YouTube where anybody can get a video on this platform and be a broadcaster, be a producer. And that has just expanded with social media. And now you have every level of quality, both content and production in many spaces, YouTube and then others. So the idea of user-generated content or the consumer themselves being the producer, this has its more immediate roots to reality television, right? Yeah. So, oh, look, the you know, reality, it's, it's the real life. It's not some scripted thing produced. It's this real thing and it's cheaper. And so there's a lot of it happens, whatever. But the cousin and the grandchild to that is YouTube going on YouTube. We've all done it. You know, you go on YouTube and you look up goofy bloopers or, you know, people falling off their bicycles, puppies, <laughs> these things get millions and millions of, of views. And yeah. so that's an, a natural human thing. And that's not going away. And if you look at the quality of the technology, I hold up my iPhone 13 because that is certainly a new leap in quality in the new iPhones. They look beautiful. They look great. That is really only going to grow now moving forward. And this will have varying levels of value, you know, from an educational standpoint, from a news and local connection standpoint, and even geopolitical, where things like the Arab Spring, you know, where people will be communicating about political strife and change in certain places across the globe, they can do it now at a very high level to a very wide range of people instantaneously with this technology. And that's only going to increase. And it's frankly going to contribute to change on this planet. Yes. It already has. Yes, and I love the point you made about consumer-generated content. That is a huge change versus the way it used to be when you said there were only a few people, relatively speaking, who controlled what you saw. That is a sea change. 
I'm fascinated by that. The world lost uh, the great Stephen Sondheim, and I am a gigantic devotee to him and his work. He's beyond genius. I'm uh, just, I cannot even express like the, the talent and the, the craft of this man that has left us. But, you know, is the next Stephen Sondheim waiting out there on YouTube writing his next musical? Stephen Sondheim had to come up through the tutelage of Oscar Hammerstein. <laughs> you know, yeah. he had to come up through that world. And then Lenny Bernstein and, you know, like West Side Story, the whole thing, right? It's not that same environment. Now can have someone sitting in their living room with a complete symphony orchestra at their fingertips because of technology, because of computers and synthesizers, et cetera. And so my point is, where is creativity going to go? I think the art world in particular is seeing the fruits of a user-generated marketplace because we don't see a lot of Sondheims running around. That's not what is happening. There are greats out there. There are incredible geniuses and craftspeople, but I wonder where that's going to go. This concludes part one of our two-part series on the transformation of media production and distribution with our guest expert, Brian Brodeur. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Brian or me, please contact me at my website, www.jeff-ostroff.com. And if you like this episode, I'd really appreciate your liking it or giving it a positive review on the podcast hosting site where you listen to it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.